Welcome to Making a Scene and Esplanade podcast on how art gets made. My name is Himanshu Verma. I'm the founder and CEO of Connected to India. And in this Kala Utsavam special of Making a Scene, our guest is the inimitable one-man army Devdutt Patnaik, a doctor by education and a mythologist, author, illustrator, and speaker by vocation. Devdutt can recite the 300 versions of Ramayana, the entire Mahabharat, and the Bible. All the illustrations across his work are sketched by him. In addition to Indian mythology, Devdutt is conversant with Egyptian, Persian, Chinese, Japanese, Oceanic, Aborigine, Greek and Inca mythology. Devdutt, welcome to Kala Utsavam special of Making a Scene. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So how and when did you decide to adopt arts in addition to medicine? So art was always a part of my life. I've been an illustrator from school days. I would do these. I was one of those nerdy kids whose diagrams are also as good. Uh, what you see as illustrations today is really for me diagrams. You know, when you were a science student, you have diagrams whenever you explain things. So illustrations really are part of my writing so there's never been a separation between the writing and the art ever you know you have a very interesting journey of uh, when you were when you're starting out you would reach out to media houses leaving intriguing notes for editors enough to pique their interest to give you an assignment you know these are all makings of a modern legend do tell your story in your own words well um, you know 25 years later when you have written all these books it sounds very exciting but the struggle period was quite awful i had studied finished medicine i didn't want to really practice medicine but didn't know what to do but i knew i, I enjoyed writing i knew illustrating so i was trying to you know access journals magazines newspapers if i could be an illustrator for them if i could do freelance work for them so i would go to all the journals and send them my artwork or send them my articles and you know i once went to a fem, you know women's magazine and i sent them you know illustrations of all the female villains to get their attention and i said are you interested in knowing about them i tried to attend a fashion magazine saying that why don't you think of combining fashion um, spreads with some of these kind of arts none of it worked really it sounds very exciting now but at that time it was very frustrating uh, i know at least one editor who would keep calling me back and i would keep following up at least 20 times until i realized that they were just giving me the run so all those things i have been been through but struggle is struggle you have to go through it uh, give us a time perspective was this during your mbbs days after the mbbs after, days after so this was in the 1990s this would be mid 90s Uh, interestingly you had studied mbbs you still thought that you would rather write and do other things as opposed to pursuing further education as a doctor yeah, yeah I, i mean i luckily at that time uh, at one particular point i uh, met a, gen- a gentleman who was like a doctor who who had started a medical magazine so that sort of gave me some kind of income because i handled his entire magazine because i was very good at it i was a magazine secretary in my college and somehow i think printing and writing came to me naturally right from college days so i knew how to collect articles edit articles design layouts get them printed i knew everything uh, i knew how to manage with less funds and my art most of the times came because there was no fund to get photographs or to get other artists so i would do the all the art myself i learned that you know creativity comes out of poverty and the less money you have the more creative you become and the more money you have the less creative you become that's an important thing for me even today you know when i see people with too many resources i realize that the creativity is going to go down because you're not managing your money well and that sort of happened and um, 
you know these things happen very organically but it's in the world of communications so i would at that time call myself a medical communicator uh, and a mythologist which my friends found very funny but at that time i thought i was being serious and accurate okay and uh, so out of all the art forms you you pursue currently you know how did you create the first one was that successful uh, how did you start getting recognized for your art so you know honestly even today there are many people who keep asking me who does your art so i really not many people know i do my own art it's for some reason they read the writings but they don't see the line over there saying illustrated by the author and i do a lot of videos i have online things but i don't think most people realize that i am the artist of my own work it's um, it's not something that i've given attention because i draw very fast i don't do i don't enjoy elaborate complex drawings i like these quick drawings and now over time for every article that i do i illustrate so and those things take not more than 2 3 minutes um, so it is a little roughness and crudeness about it uh, which i like i mean i don't like to keep my art i tear them away i like them to be organic and just use them for, as doodles really no well they do their job and uh, it's been related very distinctly to your style now so it's fantastic you have studied indian mythology very deeply and that to various versions and after all that you did not settle for any of those and you came out with your own interpretations you know with books like my hanuman my geeta and so on why did you do that you see i don't believe you can ever be faithful to any school of thought anywhere no human being can be although there are schools of thought these are ways of thinking which prevent you from discovering yourself all human beings are unique your brain structure is different from mine your experiences are different from mine and if we both of us read the same book we cannot receive it in the same way we all will process it differently this desire to you know homogenize the world like everybody has to agree with a guruji or a school of thought is an absurd uh, pathological idea really because you're trying to turn people into some kind of objects which are standardized we are not each one of us will have different ideas each one of us will think differently function differently and therefore uh, you know i read a lot of books and i see the strengths and weaknesses in every author so um, let's look at um, you know if you're reading max muller and uh, you know nowadays whatsapp academy loves to attack people for without reading them but you have to understand max muller lived in the 19th century he is thinking like a 19th century man he cannot think like you in the same way if you are reading uh, you know wendy downinger you have to understand that she is from chicago new york um, she belongs to a very different milieu so even if she is writing on the rigved she is going to write it in her way and therefore you have to filter out these thoughts and figure out your own thought i am a function of who i am i was born in bombay in the 1970s the pre internet era uh, i have seen the arrival of the social media so the way i look at it is very different and there is never a school of thought as such every scholar in india even in india there's no word for translation you know that the word for translation we use is anuvad which basically means retelling it doesn't real anuvad summarizing vad and anuvad so it's not translation it's you can never get an exact translation of a shakespeare so this whole idea of being faithful to one school of thought it never happens never never you know everybody hears a different ramayan from their own mothers and the same ramayan changes over time when the mother tells the story again and again so i think every experience is unique and we must accept it for that how do you respond when you hear someone else's version of the same story or uh, a part of mythology which doesn't really confirm or align with your own considering you are say, you saying that everybody interprets 
the whole narrative differently so you know i always check the denominator of an idea like for example when somebody is reading i know what they are reading in many a times i actually know which text they are reading i know which politics they are aligned to uh, what is their insecurity that they are projecting in the story it all comes through it's very easy to figure it out so it's more a psychoanalytical experience you know when suddenly you'll find a man trying to justify man's actions or you see somebody trying to justify caste or somebody trying to justify patriarchy or somebody trying to justify certain particular form of behavior i'll give you an example i remember this guy speaking to me very passionately about prophets and i kept saying that you know the word prophet does not exist in hindu mythology and that's because he had never read it he didn't think like that no book he had read or picked up had ever told him that there was a difference between the two and he did not have the intelligence to know the difference between the two but he was passionately convinced because he had read he was a very well read man but i do know that many scholars even today don't know the difference i've met very very senior scholars who don't know the difference between a prophet and an avatar and the meanings and the stru- because i am a structuralist i think structurally and i explain the differences very clearly um, they don't think like that so when you read someone who thinks differently i try to figure out why are they thinking differently and i say okay these are the ways this is where they are coming from so you will have writers who are nationalists who are trying to say that indians are somehow superior to other people or if you're reading to a chinese scholar and you're talking about chinese tradition after some time you're like okay this is what he thinks so you're a japanese scholar so we all are chauvinists we all bring our own prejudices onto the table and when you hear a story you also understand the prejudices that come along with the story So knowledge is clearly the foundation of your success. How much weightage of your success would you give to your oratory skills? You're such a powerful communicator as well, Devdat. It plays a very important role. So uh, knowledge, see there are two parts to knowledge. One is gathering knowledge and second is distributing knowledge. And uh, you have to ask yourself that, you know, some people read the process, they understand things very beautifully, but they just can't communicate it. It's there in their heads and they're very good. You tell them to solve a problem, they'll solve a problem, but they can't be teachers. They can't create next generation of leaders so uh, i think the whole act of knowledge is the same thing you create knowledge you articulate it you transmit it who do you transmit it to how do you transmit it these are all complex processes and uh, they're skills some people can do it some people can't do it so that's the thing which you find everywhere even in the corporate world if you're a good communicator your chances of success are higher you know communication does play a very important role writing and i for some mysterious reason i'm good at communication i've never worked on it it's just been natural to me i guess it comes with the high level of intelligence you've blessed with devdat uh, earlier on i'd asked you a question about your works can you please tell us about which specific work of yours got you recognition where you started getting known as this has been done this is devdat patnaik's work Um, so it, it depends on which audience we are talking about. So I started writing in 1996. I was 26 years old. My first book was published then. I thought it would be a great bestseller. It was not. It, you know, 300 copies were sold in a year. And uh, I was like, oh my God. I thought that was my salvation. I would be like Salman Rushdie making zillions. And the rude shock of life came that, it, you know, it's a complex process of distribution and marketing. And it doesn't happen that easily, which I never understood. And what is the name of that book? Shiva and Introduction. by a publishing house which sort of uh, has claimed copyright over it so you know you get exploited you get cheated 
uh, even when you are young. So um, I've had my share of people, you know, by legal means cheating me. So you, know, you can cheat people even through legal means and something that I learned very early in life. And they, you can do nothing about it. You just have to go with the flow because the justice system supports them. I think um, you have to just count your losses and move on and hopefully not do the same to other people. That's very important. But I make them a case study. I always tell people that, you know, be careful. I know people legal cheats and many corporate houses do that even today. It's unfortunate. It indicates low spiritual index in people. That's when I wrote and I wrote a series of books because of, you know, luckily I got an opportunity to write the books. It gave me meaning and purpose. It gave me clarity. So the positive side was that. And then when I was in my 30s, I wrote Jaya, the Mahabharata which got a lot of attention and not immediate attention. It took about three years for it to become really popular. Uh, and over time, it's now become like the book to read. Everybody reads the book when you're reading about the Mahabharat. For the first time, I think people realized that there were many Mahabharats and there were. I had given this gray boxes, which I didn't realize became the popular thing. I had the system of telling the story, but also telling sources. It was not exactly like footnotes or references, but sort of engaging with people and talking to them about the academic side of this work. And I think that was a unique feature. So you had illustrations, you had the retelling, as well as a whole bunch of academic stuff in it. And that happened somewhere in early 2000. That book got a lot of attention. And I I remember many people saying that, oh, your your first book, Jaya, was very good. And I said, no, that was my 10th book. I had written 10 books by then. So, So that's what happened. So... Uh, it still is the most, but the ones I wrote before that, like Myth and Mithya is the one which sort of uh, I consider to be my, the big entry. Where at one point when I realized that I knew my subject well was when I wrote Myth is Equal to Mithya. For me, that was a path-breaking book, the handbook of Hindu mythology. And it was known in certain circles. Like, for example, I was very popular in advertising circles and people who were dealing with semiotics. So a lot of these very specialists, and I would be part of these lot of lectures of marketing, qualitative research, people would call me for lectures. So I was quite known in a very small group of people. With Jaya, a larger audience emerged, the English-speaking. But when Devlok as a TV show happened, then the Hindi-speaking world came into my space. Because I realized the power of the oral traditions in India. We prefer the oral over the written and then even today that's why podcasts and all are much more powerful uh, I reach out to more people because of my TV interviews and my video interviews so that's the world I live in so I now understand there's an audience for my writing there's an audience for my illustration there's an audience for my the speaking so where did the change happen it depends on what audience we're talking about and in this timeline when did the secret seven secret series happen it all happened in the 2000s. Most of these works happened in the 2000s. It's all happened in the last 25 years. It's the easiest answer I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the good thing about technology is we just have to go to a Wikipedia page unless it's been sort of attacked by some crazy trolls. Uh, so Myth and Mithya happens in 2006. Jaya happens in 2010. So we are in the 10th year of Jaya. And uh, the Seven Secrets happens soon after that in 2011. Seven Secrets of Shiva and Vishnu happens in 2011. Again, about 10 years has passed. I'm very curious to know, how have these books done internationally with diaspora across the world? 
It's difficult to know because I sell it through Indian publishers. They sell it in Amazon.com, and most of the diaspora buys their books when they come to India. So I do know that when they come to Chennai in December during the season, a lot of sale happens. Uh, I know Kindle downloads happen a lot. Usually the sale, so it's just Indian sales. So it's very difficult to know. But I am surprised at how many people from the diaspora are familiar with my work. That being said, there are many people who are not familiar with my work also. So there's a large number because they don't read anyway. So if the reading public and those who are interested in their children being familiar with our culture, they do pick up my books. I and I have created enough for children, for different groups of people, those who are philosophically interested. But mythology remains my main thing. I talk about mythology. So both the children group and Hindi is also there. Many people buy it for their parents, and then the, the management books that people like to read. So yeah, so quite a bit. Okay, okay, and. In in your work, you also have a fascination for obscure characters. You know, not the most well-known characters like Ram, Sita, Lakshman, Hanuman, and so on, but obscure characters like Shikhandi and Vithai, which is Vithal as mother. So, a lot of these characters people have not even heard of. Uh, why do you have that fascination? See, one of the biggest learnings I have had in the last few years is that when we speak of mythology, we speak of it in historical terms. We talk about India as a homogenous entity. maybe because we are trying to you know you, uh, you know a very delhi centric approach since 1947 we're talking about indian nation state uh, and therefore mythology is seen as indian mythology two things we don't do we don't see mythology as a function of time how indian ideas change over time that's one thing we don't see some people do that's why you'll see my books repeatedly talking about vedic mythology and puranic mythology to tell people that the vedas don't have brahma vishnu shiva and purans are only 2000 years old so the concept of time and tying it to mythology is very important the second thing which i do is tying mythology geography so geography becomes important so vithai is a concept that is known amongst maharashtrians because vithai or mother vithal is panduranga from pandharpur and it's in maharashtra now maharashtra marathi people will know about it odias would have never heard of it now odisha is obsessed with jagannath 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 so the vaishnav culture of odisha is tied to jagannath so they will not know about nathadwara in rajasthan they will not know about shriranga no clue we don't realize that much of indian mythology and the faith inside the house is tied to geography and the relationship of geography to faith is something that is not realized there is no indian mythology there is tamil mythology there is uh, kerala mythology there is karnataka i mean there is a pan indian thing yes when i'm writing a book like seven secrets of vishnu and all that but that's pan indian but i want people to be aware that all this pan indian thing has a has a history b has a geography and then the third layer which you have to think of is communities and caste because mythology shifts with castes brahmin mythology is very different from dalit mythology if you don't look at all these three angles you don't get a full picture of india and then you realize the complexity when we say india is a complex country uh, we don't understand these fine details so that's what i'm going towards i'm trying to educate people in a very simple way it can be very overwhelming but i think we have to we owe it to the next generation to make them aware of these things otherwise they will die only academicians will know about these things and a few people will know but it will not be with the common man and i think the young boys and girls should know what is india because you know who else will tell them if we don't
वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग एंड कोइंसिडेंटली आई हर्ड अबाउट विठई फ्रॉम लेडी हुज फ्रॉम महाराष्ट्र हरसेल्फ यू नो टू योर पॉइंट सी दिस होल आइडिया ऑफ आई ऑलवेज टेल पीपल आई विल नेवर सी जीसस इन अ फेमिनिन फॉर्म आई हैव नेवर सीन एनी इमेज एनी पोएट्री इन फेमिनिन फॉर्म आई नो देयर वाज सम वर्क डन ऑन इट बट इट वाज इन वेरी स्मॉल कल्ट्स वी विल नेवर हियर ऑफ मुहम्मद इन अ फेमिनिन फॉर्म वी डोंट टॉक ऑफ अल्लाह इन अ फेमिनिन फॉर्म वी जस्ट डोंट टॉक ऑफ मोसेस इन अ फेमिनिन फॉर्म इन चाइनीज ट्रेडिशंस यू डोंट टॉक अबाउट द जेड एम्परर इन अ फेमिनिन form uh, we have only kuan yin in a feminine form who is also masculine with a buddhist idea but this idea of looking at vishnu a male god in female form and connecting with it is so casual in mystical traditions especially in india you know we can see tirupati devasthanam the deity covered in in a female form we can see in um, shiva being worshiped in a female form so these ideas are unique to india and i think if you don't tell people about it you know now people are talking about gender fluidity all these seems to be very cool post structural words but in its own way it existed in indian culture where fluidity was accepted gender fluidity these ideas maybe not exactly the way we see it today but it, they were open to these ideas we were not this weird rigid political hinduism that you're seeing nowadays which is like a very warped idea but you know it seems to have become very popular perhaps because we are not familiar with the complexities of our country very interesting you were talking about how the younger audiences need to know i want to ask you know how much of your work has appealed to the younger audience what kind of reaction did you get for the boys who fought and sham so uh, what is funny thing is i you know when i used to go to jaipur lit festival for the last 10 years my audience kept changing initially it was a particular kind of a readership english readership then gradually i saw uh, when i went on television a wider group came in in the last time i went to jlf about 2 3 years ago i had an audience where there were grandparents parents and children sitting there the most fascinating thing especially because of devlok uh, show is that many people have walked up to me and said you know because of you my children are reading ramayana mahabharat they finding it cool because you're not preaching you're not trying to sell an idea i don't believe in selling hinduism to anyone i just want them to enjoy these thoughts and figure out for themselves what they want it's something that has emerged and i see children liking it suddenly i have suddenly become very popular amongst children because of this and now we are creating a lot of drawing books illustrations so that because people want to draw color connecting it with these stories and also like for example i tell rama and for children but not as ram is the center uh, but sita is the center so the girl who chose because we don't realize in rama and sita makes five choices we are never told rama and that way it's on my interpretations what valmiki wrote i've just reframed it in a way that you become aware that here is a woman who makes five choices in ramayan so that's a very empowering 21st century way of looking at ramayan and i want girls to know that or or you see boys who fought you know boys have to deal with bullies there are bullying in every school happening so when you read the mahabharat for children so it's done in such a way that the children will enjoy it with you know i don't compromise in the story the story is a little tough and rather frightening and violent mahabharat cannot be made simple you have heads being chopped and cut you know stomach being ripped apart and bhima drinking blood and you can't suddenly say he was drinking orange juice so you have to bring it out and you have to show the violence of the world which is part of our scriptures so i've done that i, I don't talk down to children i try to uh, take the scriptures 
to their level so that they can be uplifted. So I think that's perhaps helped all these younger generation. Now I've like I've got seven or eight books for children, and the Fun and Devlok series has been a super hit. So that's the most popular book, really. That's where you know Shiva plays dumb charades, or Indra finds happiness, or Gauri and the talking cow, or an identity card for Krishna, where I make gods as part of life, not something distant and far away. And so, what kind of questions do you get from uh, children? You know, in a in a place like a Jaipur Literary Festival. Well, they really want to know more stories. See, when children are asking questions, they're just curious. They want to know more, and uh, many a times they're goaded by their parents. I don't think they're so interested. They're curious as much as they wanted to be entertained. So you keep telling them stories. So it's not curiosity. What I find is. Um, I keep making them think for themselves whenever they ask questions the same way I respond to any adult I don't talk down to children if I if a child is trying to say that tell me the right version I'll say there is no right version I will not tell him an answer that he wants to hear I will not judge I don't want him to judge characters I want him to figure out characters for who they are so I try to talk to them as adults so the kind of questions I will hear will be exactly the same as adults honestly when you think about it it's no different you know either is some clarification Specifications that they need, or they want their own point of view to be validated, or they want to know about new gods. But really, you tell them another story, and they enjoy it. So I'm going to change gears, uh, and I'm going to go back to some of the big epics because I absolutely love hearing your comparisons of very specific characters. So I'm going to, you know, go back to the big epics of Ramayan and Mahabharat. Uh, do share your perspective on the rivalry between the doting brother Lakshman and the ultimate follower or Bhakt Hanuman. Uh, who did you think Lord Ram or Sri Ram favored more? See, uh, I don't think Ram would favor anyone because we have to ask ourselves, what is Ram? Ram is the divine entity wrapped in mortal flesh, but not aware of his divinity. So divinity won't favor one over the other because it ceases to be divine, because that is aham. So we have to think like that. They are not Shakespearean characters. They are, Ram is not flesh and blood like you and I. We are talking about a very specific story, which is trying to explain if God were to be part and living with us, how would he behave is the question. If he was aware of that he was God, he would behave like Krishna. But if he was not aware, how would he behave? These are the questions that Ramayana is asking. And that's the answer which emerges. Now... Imagine divine entity seeing Ram and Lakshman and what would he see? It's an unbiased approach. If you do a comparative study, Lakshman's love, is it love or is it obligation because they are brothers? Does he have a greater right to Ram because they are connected by blood and family? While Hanuman is not blood and family. Hanuman is from the forest. He's a vana, vanavasi. And he is a Vanara. So how would Ram behave with one another? How will Hanuman behave around Ram? And which, what is loyalty? And why do you need loyalty? And why is loyalty good? You know, why do we like dogs? We like dogs because they're loyal to us no matter what. But do we want humans to behave like dogs? You know, these are the questions that Ramayana has to raise. It is not that what is better, what is worse. Because each one's context is very different. Lakshman is in a different context. Hanuman is in a different context. You can argue that Lakshman is obliged to obey Ram. Hanuman has no such obligations. He has no expectations. There is nothing he is getting from Ram. In the entire story, there is not one thing he asks from Ram. So who is helping whom? Does Ram need Hanuman or does Hanuman need Ram? These are questions to ask and that will help us understand 
Lakshman and that will help us understand Lakshman is uh, said to be a form of uh, Sheshanaga who is always with Ram and he has no choice but to be with Ram all the time like following him while Hanuman is something else so these are questions that we have to ask ourselves it is not about Hanuman it is not about Lakshman it's not about Ram it is about when you start having this conversation in your head and you start making a structural analysis what does it say about yourself and your own needs and your own choices and does it make you a better person that's the way I approach these subjects I don't try to see them as objective things outside my consciousness they are part of my life and tells me oh do I want a Lakshman in my life do I want a Hanuman in my life am I a Lakshman am I a Hanuman these are more important questions I feel okay uh, but a scholar like you uh, how do you respond to stories which we've heard when we were kids or we've read that how when all the conflicts were settled and Ram Rajya had begun Hanuman actually take care of Lord Ram in a sense which was much greater than the way Lakshman did and there was some sort of a rivalry between the two and one day Sri Ram took a yawn and then his mouth wouldn't close because Hanuman wasn't there to you know snap his fingers and so on so how do you respond uh, uh, to, to See, stories like stories, that these are stories um, these are stories talking about wanting to serve Ram and this whole idea of eagerness to serve Ram and these are folk tales that emerged you know because these are kind of fun things to have that the whole family wants Ram and his family and the family taking care of him and an outsider and perhaps it's a it's a commentary on how Indians are uncomfortable with outsiders and strangers what is our relationship between family members we want family members to be loyal but many times there are quarrels with family members we don't like outsiders coming inside the family how do we treat people family versus staff if you favor a staff member, the family doesn't like it. They become jealous. You go to any business family and you will see that how the loyal staff is treated and how the family feels threatened that, you know, will the share of property go there? So these are, I think, um, poetries and stories written to reflect these realities of Indian families. I'm sure it happens across the world, but I know that in Indian families, family members are very wary of talented professionals. In a corporate world, it is the classic family business owned and how they deal with professionals they're threatened by professionals and one can argue that Hanuman is a professional in a family business and his hard work naturally makes all family members uncomfortable and I think that's what the story is trying to tell us but you do agree that these uh, endearing tales also have a place in mythology uh, by that what does it mean a place in mythology the purpose of mythology is to make us better human beings that is the only purpose of mythology. Mythology is how our ancestors imagined the world. And they imagined the world. When you are taking Ramayana, you must understand what is Vaikunt. Because Ram is Vishnu on earth. And what is Vishnu? Vishnu is someone who creates Vaikunt, the ocean of milk, where everyone feels taken care of and protected. And where there is prosperity and joy. And where there is someone who takes care of you. So Vaikunt is not an abstract concept out there. It is what we want to create around us. So you can't look at mythology as something outside your day-to-day -day life. Is your house Vaikuntha? Is your house Kailasa? Is your house Lanka, full of gold and full of un unhappiness? Is your house Kishkinda, where brothers kick out brothers for property? So these are, is it Kurukshetra? So these are things that we have to... Mythology is map for the human mind. 
and it is important to understand that you cannot separate mythology from life it's ultimately about life it's not an intellectual chai pe charcha conversations right now in our country ramayana is being used to create a new kind of society which is disturbing which seems to lack compassion and kindness and where being nice is seen as a negative quality and being foul is seen as a positive quality and somebody is using ramayana to do that so that's the power of mythology it does things so we cannot separate these stories from our day to day life and also remember these stories exist in history the story of lakshman and hanuman these come from the 14th 15th century they don't come from valmiki ramayan valmiki ramayan is not interested in that because valmiki ramayan family relationships didn't play a very important role family relationships start playing a very very important role in the later traditions it's the early traditions um, family relationship is seen in a very material and transactional way in the early scriptures and you see these transformations over time in history you won't find these stories for example in southeast asian ramayans where family relations don't play a very important role war and heroism in plays a much bigger role the veera rasa but sakha bhav shringar bhav these are seen only in the 14th 15th 16th century scriptures a lot so you can't see mythologies outside our life at least i don't and that is for me very very important mythology is who we are in a it sort of we negotiate with it all the time to become better people very interesting uh, i would also like to you know ask about the intersections between ramayan and mahabharat you know they circle around lord hanuman as him being chiranjeevi so what is your version of the time when bhim crossed paths with uh, hanuman ji so uh, i have written a book called ramayan versus mahabharat it's a playful comparison where i've shown about 60 things which are common in ramayan and mahabharat and they cross across and we don't realize for example ramayan uh, you have dashrath going into the forest trying to hunt deer ending up killing shravan kumar which sort of provokes a series of events which lead to ramayan when you read the mahabharat you have pandu going on a deer hunt and he shoots a deer which turns out to be kindamarishi and a curse which leads to the mahabharat like that you will find patterns across because both these stories were written around the same time and they clearly structurally very very similar it's not an original idea many scholars have observed it they are talking about kingship and in that hanuman plays a very important role because hanuman in many ways represents the india's ascetic traditions it represents the greatest energy intelligence you can have you know the embodiment of a person who has all the knowledge in the world all the strengths in the world but desires nothing how is there can an entity such as such an entity exist someone who is extremely smart extremely wise extremely strong has all the kind of siddhis the magical powers in the world how would he engage with normal human beings who want things who have ambition who have desire who have needs who have wants and i think that's why hanuman becomes a very very powerful entity and his engagement therefore is there in ramayana and mahabharat because he's constantly challenging kings he's sitting in front of ravan and challenging ravan in sanskrit and there is uh, you know hanuman who knows the vedas and there's ravan who knows the vedas and you clearly know who has actually understood the vedas or on the other side you have bhima who is a royal prince and is pompous enough to saying that i'll only walk in a particular way and hanuman takes the form of an old monkey to teach him humility and humility is something that bhima lacks so even a hero has a flaw and through him you make aware that here is a man who has all the power in the world all the intelligence in the world but wants nothing 
Now, that's an entity that is difficult to imagine. It's very awesome and uh, he's not obliged to do anything. He's just there in the forest wandering. And uh, it is to teach us humility and to be wary of hubris. Uh, you know, and the tragedy is, I know so many people who do Hanuman Japa and they read Hanuman Chalisa regularly, but they're most pompous people I've met. <laughs> so, uh, talking about, you know, some of the women characters between uh, Sita and Draupadi, in your opinion, who do you find more fascinating? Who would make for, say, a more dramatic heroine of mythology? See, it uh, depends on the audience. See, uh, Sita is, of course, far more powerful than Draupadi. Remember, Draupadi screams and shouts and therefore makes good theatre, very melodramatic, untying her hair, washing her hair with blood. It's a very good drama. It's very good CGI. You can show a Netflix with a hair floating in the air. Well, Sita seems to be quiet all the time. She's not screaming and shouting. But the thing is, at the end of the day, Draupadi's five sons are dead and Sita's two children become kings. Who is smart between the two people? The quiet one who ensures her children become kings of Ayodhya or the screaming vengeful queen whose children die in the battlefield? And that's the whole thing about life, right? We want drama in our life. We want justice in our life. But we don't know when to be quiet like Sita and to be quietly confident about your... And knowing that the world is full of stupid people and unfair people and unjust people and still maintaining your grace and dignity and ensuring that your children get what they deserve. That was interesting perspective on Sita and Draupadi. Moving on to the gods between Shiva, Vishnu and Ram, who fascinates you more as a character? Well, you don't select the gods. You can't. It's not a buffet table. It's to understand each one of them is telling you something about your personality. Shiva is, doesn't want anything. So he lives on a mountain covered with snow where nothing grows. Now no human being can live on such a place because there's nothing, there's nothing grows on Mount Kailas. And Shiva is happy. So when they say he lives on Mount Kailas, it's not just a poetic description. It's a very particular description which is trying to explain something to the people. It's a metaphor for a person. If you live in a land without food, most people will shun the land. But Shiva has no problems staying there because he is not hungry, he desires nothing. Vishnu, on the other hand, is in the ocean of milk. What is milk? Milk is food. And he churns the ocean of milk to give all kinds of things that people want. He doesn't want anything. That's why he's called Achyutta. Someone who doesn't want something. But he gives to other people. So both Shiva and Vishnu are similar in that neither wants anything. But Vishnu goes the additional step of saying, okay, I don't want anything, but maybe you want something. And that conversation is very different. So it is about participating and engaging in the world. And when Vishnu comes on earth and has to live a mortal life, then he becomes a Ram. So what happens when someone who wants nothing becomes the king of Ayodhya? How will he function if he wants nothing and he has no ambitions? What will he do? And this question is answered in the Ramayana where Ram does nothing for his own benefit. His actions are rather shocking. He gives up his kingdom, he gives up his wife, all because rules, 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 rules. And that's a person who wants nothing, who desires nothing, and who understands that people are inadequate and they make mistakes, and he doesn't hate people who force him to do things which are not correct, because that's the way the world is. So you see these kind of complex Upanishadic ideas, which are there in the Upanishads, being presented in the Puranas and the Ramayana and Mahabharat. Remember, these stories are called the Pancham Ved, the fifth Ved, because Vyasa is said to have created stories and symbols. The Itihasa and the Puranas were created to communicate the Vedic truth. 
and therefore the stories contain the vedic truth they're talking about hunger they're talking about food they're talking about exchange they're talking about debt they're talking about obligations and that's what you see when you see a shiva they are not action figures they are not marvel comics which many people try to unfortunately reduce them to because that's a shallow understanding that's a dc world understanding that's a netflix understanding that's not shastra so that's great i do that i do it for all the these things but you know you don't watch netflix to become wiser you watch netflix to have fun you watch Uh, DC comics and Disney you don't expect Disney to make the world a better place Disney is just teaching you how to kill people and fight people and everybody has a sword even the princesses seem to be loving violence a lot for some weird reason and they celebrate violence because violence looks good on screen how do you show mental conflict on screen you can't uh, it can only come through conversations if you read the ramayana and mahabharata there are long conversations because they're dealing with chitta the consciousness decision making taking dharma sankat these are not melodramatic ideas so the stories are designed to make you better human beings or at least discover your humanity and the struggles of humanity it is not about admi- admiring a ram or a krishna or doing a video game out of them very interesting dev that that actually connects very well with the last question which i must ask you is uh, why must mythology be brought back in today's world well mythology always exists what we are doing is making people aware of its existence it's like oxygen you know the origin of mythology if you ask a an anthropologist and an archaeologist the first indicator that humans have mythic thinking that means they have they have an imagination of how the world functions is when you find burial rites so across the world apes don't bury the dead when human beings emerge so somewhere in the stone age not even the early stone age but in the what is mesolithic societies you will first find burial rites when you find people burying the dead usually with grave goods like ornaments it is the indicator that humans have had mythic thinking they believe there's an afterlife they believe in rebirth they believe something is going to happen after death that is the origin of mythology so humanity and mythology are tied to each other it's just that in the 19th century we decided we are all rational beings now in the 21st century we are discovering we are not thanks to donald trump but uh, we realize that human beings live in imagination we don't live in an objective material world we live in an imaginary world of heroes and villains of our culture being destroyed you know when you meet that un- whatsapp uncle who is saying like oh my god indian culture is being destroyed he's living in his imagination it's not real nothing is happening around him but he's getting paranoid because indian culture is being destroyed and that imaginary world is mythology and that is what we mean by brahmand the world brahmand doesn't mean the world out there it is the imaginary world that you and i occupy who created this world we created it that's why aham brahmasmi and since everybody around us can create these imaginary worlds it's tatvamasi so these are there everywhere it's just that people are not aware of it we use complicated words like consciousness etc and guruji talks some metaphysic gobbledygook to explain this and we don't realize they're part of our lives you can't escape mythology it's there everywhere you go to america you go to africa you go to south america they don't use the word mythology they'll use word like theology ideology social construct whom virke mythology hai nothing else of course when you say that they get very upset because they want to create a hierarchy of that we know better than you we are more objective we are more rational and for me it is like alpa buddhi they don't know enough we have to accept the fact that we all to be human is to live in myth and that's the fundamental idea just incredible dev that each time you say something it springs up few more questions in my mind but all good things must come to an end 
So uh, I would like to say thank you very much for your time. It is such a pleasure to have you on the Kalautsavam special of Making a Scene. Thanks a lot. Thanks uh, once again for speaking to thank us. Thank you so much. Making a Scene is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. Look out for more episodes of Making a Scene at esplanade.com/offstage, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers.